0: One more reason we all wish we were young again. Why do the kids get to have all the fun around here, huh? How about some adult missions trips? And all the old people said, amen. Amen. Now it's great to see our young people growing in the Lord and learning what it means to give their life in service. And so thank you, Travis and Jim and others that were part of that. Before we uh, get into our message, I got Skype today from one of our missionaries, uh, Ruth Ann Mahone, who serves in a very difficult part of the world, and I can't even tell you where it is. We're not really supposed to, so it's one of those places. She's so discouraged, she said, like just really discouraged. I think it'd be good to pray for her as a congregation right now. Could we... Uh, could we maybe, uh, do that? And Jerry Darling over here, would you just stand up and really loud, would you lead this room in a prayer for Ruth Ann Mahone for her encouragement? Let's pray together. Thank you, Jerry. Be in prayer for Ruth Ann and many others who are serving in very hard places, serving our Lord. Well, it is always exciting to start a new series. We don't do that very often around here, so let's just feel the moment. (laughs) We are starting a new series here, our fall series that is entitled, as you see there, I Met Jesus, Encounters with uh, Jesus from the Gospel of John. And I uh, I think that we're going to be meeting some interesting people. We're going to be meeting some famous people from the Bible. We're going to meet some notorious people from the Bible. And we're also going to meet some uh, people that are generally lost in the shuffle. Uh, but all of these people have something in common. And that is that they, their life and Jesus' earthly ministry vortexed. They had an encounter with him. And their lives were never the same again. And this is a message about these people. But of course, it's about Christ and the difference that he can make in our life. And the question that we're going to be asking each week is, uh, what about you? Have you met Jesus? And has he made a profound difference in your life? So that's where we're going. Uh, it's going to be a good series. And I am uh, excited in part because we have not, it's been a long time since we have uh, done teaching out of a gospel. And so I'm looking forward to that. It's been a while since we've done a narrative kind of series, and this will be more of a narrative kind of uh, teaching series, and I love telling stories, and most people like hearing them. So uh, that'll be great. And I just look forward to, in my own life, teaching ministry, studying, preparing, and talking, and bringing this into the body life of our church, a fresh look at the life of Jesus. Are you with me? Okay. So let's just kind of come at this like, I want, I want fresh. I want new. I want, I want a fresh look at my Savior. I think that that can only bring life to us and to our congregation. All right. I uh, thought that we ought to begin, if this whole series is going to be from John, by talking a little bit about the Gospel of John and giving some background on the book that the rest of our series, we don't have to do, but so that we know and understand uh, what we're looking at here before us. So, a little bit of background on the Gospel of John, and let's just begin with this very basic question. What is a Gospel? I've said that we are studying Jesus from the Gospel of John, but what is a Gospel, after all? And we shouldn't assume that everybody knows that. In fact, I think when it comes to literature, probably many people don't. We probably know what the gospel means. We use that word a lot. The gospel literally means good news. Say that with me. Not bad news, but that's right. Emphasis on the good news. I like that. That was great. It is good news. Uh, When it comes to literature, though, it has a slightly different connotation because the gospels uh, or the New Testament includes four gospels. Can you guess what they are? Say them with me if you know them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are all four for known as Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are typically referred to as Synoptic Gospels. Now, what does Synoptic sound like to you? What other word maybe you can hear in that? sin o You're like, man, everything here is about sin. Well, it's s. Y N, synoptic. And synonym means the same, uh, word that means the same as another word. And synoptic refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John because they are so similar. They're not the same, uh, but they are very, very similar. John, on the other hand, is, is, is unique. And what John includes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke often do not. And what they include, John does not. Uh, Their chronologies are different, and yet they're all four gospels because this is what a gospel is. A gospel is a genre of literature that paints a portrait. Okay, it is a it is a portrait. It is not a biography. It is not a historicity. It is a portrait. And when you talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are four portraits of Jesus. They are they are painting a portrait. These are not chronological, biographical accounts. Like if you went and and got a, a historical book on Churchill or Lincoln or somebody like that, you might expect to read an exact, you know, from beginning of his life to the end of his life in chronological order, a kind of history. The Gospels are not histories. They are historic, but they are not histories like we in the 21st century sort of want things to be done. Rather... They are portraits. And so John, uniquely of the four Gospels, is painting a portrait with theological colors. Painting a portrait with theological colors. The stories that he includes, the order that he puts them in, the way that they're arranged, the kind of questions that he's answering, all are intentionally arranged in his Gospel in order to communicate the kind of portrait of Jesus that he wants us to get. A gospel. And each gospel writer has his own perspective and main themes that they're trying to develop. So if you read through John and then you read through Matthew, you're going to be like, man, these orders don't exactly uh, line up. Or some things are said in a little bit of a different way. And there's some confusing things, even in John, uh, you know, when, when, like, Jesus will say, let's depart now from here. And then there's two or three more chapters of teaching right after it. And you're like, what? I. He's like, this is a really long, this is like a long sermon at church or something. Uh, but it's, there's confusing things in there. But you got to remember, he's painting a portrait. He's wanting us to see. So it's not an interpretive, uh, it's, it's not a photograph. It's a portrait is probably the best way to say it. Now, who wrote John? Who wrote John? Have you ever heard of uh, George Foreman? Okay. What was he famous for? two things really. Boxing and his grill. That's right. Boxing and his grill. He's also known uh, for strangely naming all five of his sons George. There's George the first, George the second, George the third, George Jr., George, George, George. So Reading through the New Testament is a little bit, uh, a little bit like going to George Foreman's house because there are all of these guys named John. You run into John all the time. For example, uh, there was, there's the Gospel of John. There is the disciple named John. There's John the Baptist. Uh, there was a John that served on the council in Jerusalem. And to complicate things, there was a guy named John that wrote the book of Revelation. In addition to that, the writer of the gospel of what we call, uh, well, let me say this. The the writer of the gospel of John actually doesn't designate who he is. He simply calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Okay, so who are you? A little confusing. On top of that, the guy who wrote Mark, his name actually was John Mark. And so if John Mark's gospel had been named John rather than Mark it would have been first john which would have made what we call now the gospel of john second john which would make what we call first john third john and second john fourth john and third john would then be fifth john that's right so and don't forget you got Revelation on top of that. So you just have all of this kind of confusion around the name John, especially when it comes to who wrote the book. And there is debate because there's debate about everything, but we can be confident that the John that is described as the writer of this uh, gospel is none other than the disciple John, brother of James, who went on to be an apostle in the early church. A member of the inner circle, Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter and James, he wrote this gospel, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation. He pastored the church at Ephesus later in his life and died there. We The tradition is that he died there. And when I was in, uh, it's in Turkey, in Ephesus, actually, uh, there is a place where history says is the tomb of John. And so I took a picture and... There it is, in case you never get a chance to go there. That's what it looks like. We don't know if he's there or not, uh, but that's what history says. Let's talk about the purpose of the letter. John gives his purpose in John 20, verses 30 and 31, and here's what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now that is a cool verse, is it not? Why did I write this thing? I wrote it because I lived with him, I saw the things that I'm talking about, and I write it so that you too may believe what I believe, and that is that he is the Christ. And not just so we may believe. And so that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. And that life comes through a relationship with Christ. In fact, John ends his gospel with these words. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how he ends it. And that is a really cool verse too, isn't it? To realize that all that we have in the four Gospels, it's like a sampler plate. If we really wanted to know everything that he actually did, all the wonderful things that, that he did in his earthly ministry, John says the whole world couldn't contain the books. Which makes me wonder if maybe in heaven there's like DVD series that you can watch that fills in all the things that he actually did in his life. Are you with me? Would that not be a great thing to do, to be able to say, well, let's see, Jesus, the early years. Let's, uh," (laughs) I think I'm going to watch this today. What we know is so wonderful, but what we know is so little compared to what he truly did and all that he said. Even the whole world could not contain the books but the purpose statement here is that we might identify Jesus as the Christ and personally receive the gift of eternal life echoing John 3:16 famously so our series is going to focus on these people that had encounters with Jesus and what happened as a fruit of a result of those moments and i want to ask you to come every week come every week Why? Well, it's a good thing to do. You should go to church every weekend. But in addition to that, we're going to be meeting all kinds of people who are living life just like you and me. And you don't know what weekend somebody's going to be living the life that you're living and the change that came into their life as a result of meeting Jesus is the same thing that you need. So we're going to just be meeting people this this whole fall. I hope that you'll come and be a part of it. Now, with that introduction, our time is a little pressed with uh, meeting our first person. First person in our series, our first I Met Jesus. And I want to tell you about this guy, and guess what his name is? How did you know that? That's right. His name is John. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. The apostle introduces him. We're now going to be in John 1 tonight. If you're not there, you ought to get there John 1 and again a strong encouragement to bring your Bibles if you do not have one we have them at the welcome desk as you come in and if you can't afford one we would be happy to give you one John 1 John introduces John known as John the Baptist I'm going to name him something different Uh, in the sixth verse of the entire gospel now that alone is something significant The very first person, other than Jesus, who, by the way, is not mentioned by name, simply called the Word, is this guy, John. Distinction, right away. And he says about John in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. That's all it says. Okay, And right away, we're introduced into one of the great controversies that surrounded John the Baptist's life. And that is, who was he? Notice that that verse says that he was not the light, but he bears witness to the light, which verse 4 tells us was Christ. That Christ is the light That he has the life. But John was not that light. He simply bore witness to that light. And so right away we are thrust into this big thing of confusion that if I could push a button, and we all went back in time uh, to the days when John the Baptist was there, everybody would have been talking about it. And I want to talk to you a little bit about this great controversy in the life of John. And part, it, it basically, it, it has to do with the fact that John the Baptist, as we call him, was a great man. He was a famous man. He was successful by any standard. In fact, he was so great a man that in the day, there were people that were whispering. They were saying, do you think he might be the one? What are you talking about? Do you think he might be the one? I don't get what you're saying. Do you think he might be the chosen one? Do you think he could be? And that's a quick summary of verses 19 through 23. (laughs) Look at what it says. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, what they thought he might be, this actual Messiah, and why they thought he might be that requires a little bit more of a glimpse into the story. And John the Baptist is one of these guys whose story is bigger and longer than one sermon allows for, but we're going we're gonna to do it in one. If you read in the Gospels, you will discover in Luke that John the Baptist, actually his birth was announced by angels. Angels an angel in particular, Gabriel, appeared to his father, Zechariah, in the temple and said, you're going to give birth to a son. And when you do, you're supposed to name him John. So not only was his birth foretold, his name was picked for him. Anybody here have an angel uh, announce your birth? Anybody here's name given from heaven? No. Okay, so this is now fairly distinguishing for John, don't you think? Well, it goes on past that in the fact that in Luke one eighteen we find that there is a, I call it a near miraculous conception. And why do I say it was a near miraculous conception? Because the text says his parents were advanced in years. Now, this was not a virgin birth, but it was certainly surprising. We don't know how old they were, but they were old. And I thought as I was preparing this, I could possibly estimate their age and ask women here to stand. But then I thought better of it and decided it would just be better to move on. Notice the next thing about John that distinguished him, and that is that his appearance and his dress were like a prophet, like Elijah. Here's Mark 1, six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He becomes known as John the Baptist, which I have found some humor in because the way that he looked, John the Baptist wouldn't be welcome in many Baptist churches. He was not polished, he was not well-groomed, he had no seminary degree, he lived in the wilderness, he ate stuff that our teenagers would call gross, his hair, his beard, and frankly, his bodily smell would have said to his culture and ours, this is one unique fellow, John the Baptist. What shook the culture of his day was his message, and his message was, A message of repentance from sin, of coming judgment, and of baptism. And that message, you say, well, come on. I see weirdos doing that all the time up in Chicago. People do not think John the Baptist was a weirdo. They they went out to him. In fact, it says that all Judea and all Jerusalem went down to the wilderness where he was so that they might be baptized. The religious leaders send people saying, who are you? Even Herod the king, he gives a message where he says, you know, Herod the king shouldn't be sleeping with his uh, his brother's wife. And Herod could not ignore it and had him arrested. The people, the leaders, and even the king paid attention to John the Baptist. Powerful message of judgment. A powerful message of Declaring the way of the Lord. This was an extraordinary person. And that is why there were whispers all around people that were wondering. They're saying, He's so different. He's so special. He's so, he's so, oh, I just, I want to be near him. I want to hear what he has to say. Look at his popularity. Dare we say it? Might he be the chosen one? Might he be the Messiah himself? And this is part of why John the Baptist was so great. Because let me just ask you a second. Let's just say that you're John the Baptist. And from the time that you were born, your mother was saying, did you know that angel appeared to your dad and said that you were going to be born? And do you know how old I am? And do you know that your name, John, it's not a family name. It's a name that, I, that we gave you because the angel. Your name, your birth, it's all from God. And as he grows up, everywhere he walks, because the word went about all throughout the countryside regarding his birth and all that happened, his town he grew up in, all the little towns around him, everywhere he went, they're like, that's the guy, angel appeared, his mom's old, <laughs> <laughs> and everywhere he went, he'd hear these little whispers, you know, and 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 then in his early 20s, he begins to preach in the wilderness. Not exactly the most comfortable place, not a great place to plant a church, not a great place to get your ministry going. Out in the wilderness. And right away, there's a special anointing on his ministry, and there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that are going out and hanging on his every word. If you were John the Baptist... And you were hearing people asking questions. Are you the fulfillment of ancient prophecy? Are you possibly the Messiah? You're so wonderful. You're changing people's lives. Are you the Messiah? What would it be natural for a man who has such incredible distinctions to begin to think when somebody asks him, are you possibly the Messiah? I mean, it would take an extraordinary person to not pause for a moment and go, Maybe I am. I mean, I am special. I've heard it from the time I was born. My mom always told me I was special. I've had admirers telling me I'm special. Maybe I'm special. And for John to be what? Proud. If there was anybody who had a right to be proud and to think that they were somebody... It would be the fellow who angels appeared to announce his birth and and his name was given and his parents were old and the anointing of the spirit was upon him, even within the womb, the text says in one place. Now there's a guy that would be kind of easy to see him maybe having a slightly inflated sense of self, don't you think? And maybe even deserving it. In fact, I would say this. Think about how much we struggle, you and me, with an inflated sense of self. And there were no angels that were appearing to announce your birth, were there? And this is why John the Baptist is so remarkable. This is the man who Jesus said was the greatest man who was ever born of a woman. And yet, in his own eyes, he was something radically different than that. And so with that background, let's talk about this moment when they met. And... In John's gospel, it's a little bit cryptic. It's a little hard to see. I'm going to point it out to you. The other gospels make this more clear. But look at verse 32, where here we have John the Baptist talking about the moment when he baptized Jesus and what that moment meant to him. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. Now what is he talking about here? He's describing the day that Jesus was baptized by him. And in here we find that somehow God had communicated to him that at some point in his ministry and in his life that he was, going to, he was going to meet and see the Messiah. And that God had said, you'll know it's him when you see the Spirit descend on him. Okay, He who you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John knew that. At some point, the Holy Spirit's going to come down And this is going to be the the real Messiah. So can you see John in his ministry preaching his messages? I mean, we have no idea. This could be years later, although he died as a fairly young man. Preaching his messages and looking at all the people and kind of waiting and watching and hoping maybe the Holy Spirit would come down. Or baptizing all the people. Next, okay, it's not you. It's not you. It's not you. All the time wondering, knowing at some point in his life, I am going to meet the Messiah of God. And he describes here what took place when he baptized Jesus. And Matthew 3 gives a little more clarity to the story. Here's what it says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It gives me almost chills to think about that. Can you imagine being John? I mean, there you are, you're in the Jordan River, you've baptized thousands of people before. It's another day. The text seems to indicate he sensed that Jesus was this person even before he baptized him because as he came to him, he said, "Uh, I think I should be baptized by you. And Jesus said, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, for him to identify with us as sinners, he needed to be baptized. Which, by the way, side note, he was baptized to identify with us. We are baptized to identify with him. That's the way that it works. End of side note. But imagine being John. There he is. And, and suddenly, here's Jesus before him. And he senses and that this is, this is the one. And he baptizes Jesus And can you just imagine, here's these two great men. The greatest man in the Old Covenant. The greatest man, period. And they're standing in the Jordan River, water flowing past them. There's Jesus. I just see him, you know, water coming down his face. They're just face to face like this. And I have to believe Jesus was smiling and I have to believe John the Baptist was smiling too. And can you imagine him just smiling and all of a sudden the text says... That the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, descends down upon Jesus like a dove. And what that was like exactly, I don't know. Get the video. Uh, and it comes down. And suddenly now, John, what he senses to be true, the sign that God had given him regarding who was going to be the actual Messiah, now down comes And there he is. And can you just see the joy in John the Baptist? The one that he was called. He's crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. His whole life's purpose was to prepare the people for this one person's life and ministry. And now he's standing in front of him. And there's the spirit. And then here comes the thunder. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, can you just imagine that moment for John and what that meant for him? And just the two great men, just, are you with me? That's like awesome to think about that. This was John's moment. He met Jesus. And from this moment on, his ministry begins to fade and his significance uh, begins to fade as Jesus' ministry begins to come to the fore. He was not the light, he bore witness to the light. So what do we see and here in John the Baptist? And what is there for us here in this encounter and in this story? And with John, it's easy because I'm just going to let his words speak for themselves. There are three statements that John makes that summarize The life and the attitude of John and the difference that Jesus makes in our hearts, and our lives. Here's the first one. You probably know all three of these. You know what John said? They came to him they said, Are you the Messiah? He goes, Uh, no. In fact, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. You're like, Okay, what is that talking about? I don't get that. Let me tell you what that's talking about. There was in the day the cultural teaching, which I have a rabbi's teaching right here. I'll just read it to you. Every service which a slave performs for his master, a disciple will perform for his teacher. Except one thing. There's one thing that even a slave doesn't have to do. And that is to untie his sandal strap. The lowest thing, the most demeaning thing, the thing that was even beneath a slave in the day was to have to get down there and to actually untie the sandal. Yet for John, for John the Baptist, they come to him and say, are you the Messiah? And here's a guy, if there was ever a guy that might think to himself, maybe, he says, I am not the Messiah. In fact, he's coming and he's so great. Where do I stand in comparison to him? I am not even worthy to touch the sandal. That's how much greater he is than me. The greatest man who ever lived said that Jesus was so great, he couldn't even touch the sandal. Do you get what I'm getting at here, folks? We could look at this and say, come on, this can't be John saying this. I mean, it could be one of us because after all, Gabriel didn't announce our birth and my name was not given by heaven and my parents were at the normal birthing age and I, uh, you know, didn't walk around with any special anointing and I've never had thousands of people coming out and wanting to hear what I have to say and I've never had an impact on the president or the king or frankly, even the mayor of Crown Point. Nobody cares about me. I can see how maybe I wouldn't be worthy to touch the sandal. But John the Baptist, I mean, come on, if there was anybody ever maybe worthy possibly to touch the sandal of Jesus, it would be John the Baptist. I mean, all the things that were true in his life, come on. And yet in John, listen, in John's self-evaluation, as he looked in the mirror, even with these incredible spiritual privileges, when he looked in the mirror and when he looked at Jesus in his evaluation I'm not worthy to even... I can't even touch the sandal. Folks, let that set on your heart a little bit. Let it set on the heart of a culture and of sinners like us who are all too often filled with self-importance and have grossly inflated views of our own worth. And at the same time, Have no idea what real greatness is. And that is the key to John the Baptist. It's not his baptizing, it's not his ministry. He knew his place. He knew what real greatness was, and he knew where it was found. And it wasn't in him, it was in Christ. Here's his statements I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am a voice merely crying in the wilderness. And friends, one effect of a faith encounter with Jesus, here we are 2,000 years later, we don't have the privilege of being at the baptism, but we have, by faith, the opportunity to encounter, to vortex with the living Christ in his gospel and in his word. One effect of an authentic encounter with Christ Is that it leaves us in a position of humility. We understand that real greatness is in Him. And this is the ethic of the kingdom. This is why Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Let me tell you, be the servant of all. The last shall be what? First. And yet, what do we spend all our time doing and trying for? We want to be first. We want to exalt ourselves. We want to make much of us. We want to be the voice crying in the wilderness, make way my path. Make my path straight. Make much of me, here I am. And yet the guy who had every right to be that way was the last guy to do it. In fact, he says, I want to make much of him. That's why I'm here. I'm not the light. I'm bearing witness to the light. You want to see the light? There's the light. It's him. It's Christ. And friends, this is so important for us in terms of our attitudes and our identity and who we are and how we evaluate ourselves, To recognize what real greatness is and the weightiness of what it means to actually be in a, in a theological and Godward evaluation of us. Is that we are sinners, and to feel in our heart the weightiness of our sin and and the greatness of what it means to be under the wrath of God and to see His holiness and to realize there is no way that I can get from here to there. There's nothing good in me. And to feel that burden, that sorrow over my sin, and to recognize that I am not worthy of Him. I'm not worthy. Are you? Anybody here worthy of what we're talking about? I don't think so. In fact, it's not even close. We're not, we're not just unworthy of touching a sandal, we're unworthy of seeing the sandal, being anywhere near the sandal. And when these two things come together, who I really am as a sinner and who he really is in his greatness, now I'm in a position of gospel humility. Where I find my proper place. It's not inflated, it is in humility, next to what real greatness is, and seeing that in Christ. And friends, this is why John was the greatest it was because he wouldn't touch the sandal. Let me ask you tonight where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself? Are you, are you, uh, hey, look at me, everybody. Look what I can do. Look at my gifts. I say that to myself, I'm up here flapping my gums. Am I trying to impress you? Look at me. I hope not. Not in this message, at least. Or any message, for that matter. But certainly not in this message. Look what I've done. Look at my resume. And to walk around and say, everybody, look at me. Really, any angels announcing your birth? Anyone wonder if you're the prophesied Messiah? The guy who had all that wouldn't touch the sandal. So write it down. When I have an inflated sense of my own self-worth, I am demeaning the glory of true greatness in Christ. Those two are, it's like a zero-sum connection. And I'm not talking here about us walking around with signs saying, I'm a loser, oh, woe is me. That's a different kind of pride, actually. What I'm talking about here is what John the Baptist had. And that is a Christ-shaped comparative assessment that determined his sense of his own importance. And once we are free of that, now, when John was free of that, now he could become John the Baptist. I'd love to spend a little more time on this point. Do you know why many of us don't become who we could otherwise be? Is that we have to get get over ourselves. We have to be free of our own assessment of ourselves. And once we are free of that, now we can become what God wants us to be. Here's a quote from uh, Justin Buzzard is his name. The gospel doesn't just free you from what other people think about you. It frees you from what you think about yourself. That's good. John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived because he was the freest man who ever lived. And he was the freest man who ever lived because he knew his place. Do you? Have you had an encounter with Jesus that puts you in your proper place? And from that position of humility to be free then from having to live for your own glory... To be free from having to live for other people's assessment of you. To be free from from having to live for that parent who always told you you'd amount to nothing. To be free from having to live for the uh, praise of your neighbors or or to keep up with them. To be free from even your own aspirations of success. To be free for who God wants you to be. A faith encounter with Jesus that recognizes real greatness. And won't touch the sandal. That's free living. And John had it. Here's the second thing John says. And this is going to sound like a contradiction. Which is why I love it so much. He says this. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Now what is that talking about? Wait, that can't be John the Baptist because we all know he walked around so certain all the time of everything. He knew who he was. You just got done making that point. He walked around. He he was solid in God. He was the prophet who spoke against Herod. He never struggled. He was almost superhuman all the time. No, he wasn't. Later in the story of John the Baptist, after the baptism, after the Spirit comes down, after hearing God the Father thunder, because he preached against Herod and his... Uh, illicit relationship with his sister-in-law Herod of course as the king didn't take too fondly to that can you imagine and so he said John the Baptist I'm gonna I'm arresting you and I'm sending you to a, a prison and it was a wilderness prison it was on the other side of the Dead Sea and if you've ever been to Israel you know what it's like around the Dead Sea it's nasty so this is for a man who lived in the wilderness even this was bad where he went okay so he's in Herod's doghouse in Herod's prison and uh While he's there, he's got time to think. And the more that he thinks, guess what happens? The more that he begins to wonder, is it really true? Is he really the one? And so he sends word to Jesus with this very question. Are you the one or should we look for another? I love this. Why? He doubted. John the Baptist, the greatest man ever, doubted. I think in heaven, you know, when you meet Thomas, everyone's like, hey, doubting Thomas. I think Thomas is like, John doubted too. (laughs) Everybody calls me doubting Thomas. What about doubting John? Okay. Look it up in the Bible. It's there. And Indeed, he did. He doubted. They all doubted at times. And too often we put these people up on these pedestals like they were superhuman and they just floated along in their Christian life and everything was great all the time and they never had any fears, they never had any worries, they never had any doubts. And then you get into the actual real person and you discover that they're just like us. Just like us. Now what do I mean by that? Well, who here hasn't doubted at times? Who here at times hasn't uh, on a Tuesday morning in the dead of winter, got up and just looked outside and thought, is there really a God? Or to look at the sky and to say, and to think to yourself, you know what, it's amazing, but I know the, the evolutionists, they have their theory and different scientists and all that. I, I just don't know. Or maybe in a time of darkness and trouble and pain, to wonder, is Jesus really the Christ? Because this sure doesn't feel like it. Who here has not had moments like that. And in particular with John, you know, it's easy to believe that Jesus is the Christ and when everything's going great, when you got thousands of people coming and hanging on your every word, when you got the line to get baptized by you, is a mile long. Who can't believe that Jesus is the Christ and God's for you and the whole thing's true. But when you are in the prison and you don't have the followers and you don't have the admirers and you got a maniac king who's threatening to kill you. Now it gets a little bit easier, does it not, to wonder, is Jesus really the Christ? He doubted. Are you doubting today? Are you worried that maybe those little doubts mean that you actually don't have faith? Does it mean that because I doubt it maybe isn't true? Or maybe I'm a failure. I want you to look at John the Greatest. Who also was John the Doubting, and to see that God has room in his grace for our humanity and our moments of weakness. And I love that point, amen? All right, here's the third, final thing. This is probably the most famous thing that John ever said He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. After John's baptism, get this, after John's baptism of Jesus, people begin to start uh, gravitating towards Jesus. And John's polling numbers are going down, and Jesus' polling numbers are going up. And the crowds that are following John are getting smaller, and the crowds that are following Jesus are getting bigger. And John's disciples are looking at Jesus' crowd and looking at their crowd, and they go to John and they say this. They go, hey, John, that Jesus fellow that you baptized, I know the thunder and all that, but you know what's happening? There are more people that are following him these days than you. And we need to do something about that. And John's response to Jesus drawing more crowds and getting more attention is that he must increase and I must decrease. And here we see John's great, his greatness, I think. He was great because in his own eyes, John was Small. Let me say that again. John was great because in John's eyes, John was small. The test of our true self-assessment is not when things are going good, but when things are going bad. When When things are going, other people are getting attention. Things are going other people's way. Am I okay with that? If that means... That more effective ministry is happening. If that means that God is getting more glory by what somebody else is doing. If that means that somebody else is going to get more attention and back slaps and uh, high fives than I'm going to get. If the result of that is for the kingdom, more effective gospel ministry. Am I okay with that? Am I okay with that? Friends, it's like a teeter-totter. And for some of you, this is going way back. But... Do you remember the teeter-totter? I think they still have them. It's like a teeter-totter. This is the Christian life. Okay, here's the teeter-totter. You know the basic principle? In order for one person to go up, what happens, has to happen to the other person? Has to go down. Okay, so there's always the argument amongst the kids who gets to go up and who gets to go down and then one gets off and, you know. Here's how the teeter-totter works. For one person to go up, one person has to go down. And what we've been talking about even over the last month about what God's purpose is in conforming us to the likeness of Christ is this. Here's God's goal. Here's you and me. Here's Jesus. You ready? Here's God's goal for our life. Now, if my goal is that he goes up, I'm okay with that, right? Right? Now, let's be honest for a moment. Don't what, isn't this what we really want? We want him to go up. Amen. All about him Sunday. I'm there in the front row. I love it. I go to an all about him church. Bethel, we're all about him. Amen. Amen. But quietly in our hearts, listen, quietly in our hearts, don't we also kind of want this at the same time? So that if we were honest, our view of how this ought to work is kind of like this, right? He goes up. Amen. We don't want him going down. He's Jesus but I want to go up with him. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I want you to remember that when you get the call that you've got cancer this year. And I want you to remember that when you get the call that you've lost your job and God's called you to trust him in a tough time. And I want you to remember that when it's your spouse that decides to leave you. I want you to remember that when it's your son that you had all your hopes and dreams, that's walked off the reservation. I want you to remember that in the quiet moments when it's something that you wouldn't dare tell us so we could tell you this. I want you to remember that the goal in life, true greatness, as found in John the Baptist, is that he must increase and I must decrease. And if that is my goal, I'm okay with going down. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, Alice must grow small if she is to be Alice in Wonderland. Could it be that one reason we're missing out on so much of the good that God would have in our lives is that we don't, we fight getting small. We refuse to get small in our own eyes, in our own lives, in our own families, even in the church. The glory of Christ and what he did for us, friends when properly understood, shrinks us. It shrinks us. The cross says we're sinners. The cross says that we're under judgment. The cross says that we cannot save ourselves. The cross says that we are helpless. The cross says, though, that God loves us. The cross exalts the glory of the one who died there. The cross exalts the love and the mercy of God. The the cross exalts that God is a saving God. The cross is about this, making much of Him. And in order for that to be embraced by faith, it requires making less of us. It shrinks us down to our proper place. And from that position of smallness, a most wonderful thing happens. Alice had to grow small to be Alice in Wonderland. And when we get small, guess what happens? The cross gets huge. When we get small, the love of God gets huge. When we get small, God's ability to meet my needs and trouble gets huge. When we get small, God's plan for the future and his promises that he's given to us get huge. In other words, when we get small, this whole thing gets wonderful. Christianity is wonderful when you're small. And John was small. And that's why he was great. It's like the song. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's being small. You know that song? Amazing love, How can it be That Thou, my God, Shouldst die for me? Amazing love, How can it be That Thou, my God, Shouldst die for me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And Father, we say that to you tonight. How? How can it be? Shrink us. Make us small. Help us to find our proper place. That we as small people may walk around in the wonderland of your grace. And to see Christ as huge. To see your love as massive. To see your glory in all of its resplendence. And may you, Lord, do this for your sake. So here we say, as a congregation, we want to decrease. We want you to increase. To you be the glory. Amen.